All right, we are in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, uh, and we're going to focus on five verses, verses 11 through 16, uh, and we're going to be able to, to really drill down and see the despair and gloom that affected the uh, followers of Jesus following the crucifixion prior to them knowing that Jesus was resurrected, uh, and I think we can learn a lot about this. Let's start with verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. What a, what a poignant moment this, these few verses are. And so... There are a few stories, honestly, in all of literature more poignant than the story of Ma Mary Magdalene's meeting with Jesus on the Lord's first day. Uh, and it, it, we need to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples to understand the state of gloom and despair. You know, we think about Easter today, and Easter is full of, of hope and joy, uh, and we have so many fond feelings. But, you know, prior to them understanding that he had been resurrected, their entire dreams, their entire world had collapsed. They had the deepest amount of despair and disillusion that you could ima imagine. It's like when Jesus died, everything that they hoped for had died also. And so even though this group of men and women, and there were a group of, of, of women that followed Jesus, it wasn't just the, the, the uh, 12 disciples. It was a group of women that traveled with him as well. Uh, and they loved him. They stayed with him for three years, even though they fully didn't understand what he said about what would happen after he died. They didn't understand it, yet they loved him. And so even though hope died, even though their faith died, uh, it was the love of Jesus that kept them together. The fact that they loved him so much and that they knew that he had loved them, even though they saw their, their world collapsing. Now, nobody really, no one under, uh, illustrates this issue uh, about their gloom better than uh, Thomas, uh, the disciple Thomas. And we're not told much about him, but, you know, he's called Doubting Thomas. And frankly, uh, it was not doubting. That was outright denial. I mean, I want you to turn, if you would, to John 20. Uh, let's take a look at verse 24. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Now, this is a guy that's pretty adamant about what he's going to need. I mean, that's a pretty long list of evidence. Boy, you got a lot of things you want. You want. And, that, and to me, that doesn't show doubt. That shows outright disbelief. And that, that's typical 
of what was going on because he didn't see Jesus at that point. Uh, the other disciples did. So he was holding on to his unbelief. And you have to understand that the, the reason for this is that they assumed that Jesus would be the Messiah that would take them out of the domination of Rome. They assumed that Jesus would lead Israel to a new day. It never dawned on them that, that Jesus' death would relate to the defeat of sin and eternal life forever. They had heard Jesus say that, but that was not the, their purview of what they looked at as, as the Messiah. And so the fact that he, he was dead in his brutal death, uh, they, they were really, really uh, negatively uh, impacted. And so it was the same with all the disciples before the resurrection. And if you think about it, that's how it is about uh, with us. If we didn't know that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, everything that we have or hope for is gone. As I told you, if that tomb was not empty, we'd be much better off to pack up and go and have pancakes. Okay? Let's go out and have blueberry pancakes. Really. But the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. And as a result of that empty tomb, life changes forever for everybody in the history of the world. Uh, and so uh, another great example of the death of hope um, is the statement of the, the uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus. Turn to that. Just so again, you get another picture, Luke 24. And this is one of my favorite passages. I really love this passage. Luke 24, uh, and, and uh, starting with verse 15, these two guys, Cleopas and another unnamed disciple, are, are walking away from Jerusalem. They're walking on the road to Emmaus. And we know from... Uh, theologians, that that's probably going to be a, a five or six hour walk. Uh, and so in verse 15, as they talked and discussed things with each other, Jesus came up himself and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So that, uh, in some ways, uh, the Lord did not allow himself to be recognized. And so now I want you to picture this. These two guys whose world has collapsed are now walking with Jesus. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along, as if, as if he didn't know? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? It's almost like, if you just come from space, you don't know what's happened here, how our world has been turned upside down. What things, Jesus said, <laughs> what things? You know, sometimes Jesus just lets us talk. Isn't it true? He just lets us talk. He lets us air out our hearts, let out, let air out our pain. What an example. What a mighty picture of God. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hope that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Stop. Redeem Israel. That's what they hoped for. Redeem Israel. Take the yoke of Rome off of Israel and redeem Israel. They were looking for a mighty soldier king. They weren't looking for somebody who would allow himself to be died on the, on the cross and murdered on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb 
and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And so now you see this whole thing. You see the gloom and despair, the darkness. And, and I want you to understand that, which is so poignant, so poignant, uh, uh, as, you, as you drill down and see uh, what, what uh, Mary says here, uh, which is so, so poignant as well. And so in my outline on point five, I said, faith died and hope died for these disciples and followers of Jesus. But the one thing that had not died was love. Love did not die. They still loved the Lord uh, intensely. And it was that love that carried them through the darkness of this moment until the grace of God could be poured into their life and the, re and the reality that Jesus Christ had been resurrected from the dead. Uh, and so I want you now to look at the great example of Mary, Mary Magdalene. Uh, we do not know a great deal about Mary Ag Magdalene. The Bible tells us that Mary had been the object of Christ's special grace and that he had sent seven demons out of her. And that's in Luke chapter 8. Let's look at that. You know, when you've been healed by Jesus, your world is never the same. Luke chapter 8. After this, we'll start with verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. This is an amazing statement, all right? Mary Magdalene has been delivered of seven demons. Now, the, 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 the theological world has for years said that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. There's no evidence in the Bible, okay? There's no evidence in the Bible that she was a prostitute. This has just come up out of folklore. Uh, and in fact, in 17th century England, uh, if you were a reformed prostitute, they called you a Magdalene. Okay? I mean, you see how, how, how some of these things take on a life of her own. There's no proof that that's what it was. She had seven demons. Who knows the extent of those demons? But what I love here is that these group of women who had been healed, who had been touched by Jesus, are walking with him and supporting him, supporting his ministry. And one of them is Joanna, who's married to the chief uh, head of the household of Herod. How about that? Okay, how about that? Uh, and you, you see how when somebody comes face to face with, with God, uh, it doesn't matter what their past was. It doesn't matter about their past. And so she's giving out of her substance. She's giving out of what she has uh, to the Lord. And here we see at the end, at the end she's doing the same thing. She came to the grave, she came to the tomb in order to anoint the body of Jesus. Now, I want you to understand something. When she comes there uh, and, and the body of Jesus is missing, she speaks to the gardener, where did you put him? Why? Because I want to go and get the body. I want to get the body, and I'm going to take the body back here, and I'm going to anoint it. Now, think about the fact that a woman would take the body of a man. Take the body of a man and drag it back. Think about the extent of the strength that it would take uh, for some woman to be able to do that. Now you understand the faith that she had. And not only was it a body, but his body had already uh, been packed by some spices and, and, the, and the linens. And yet she was willing on her own 
to go and take the body of Jesus and bring it back. What tremendous faith. What tremendous faith. These women are, are an example to us uh, in, in such an uh, incredible way. And so you get an extent, get an insight into her emotional capacity, uh, how, how significant it is. And so it's with tear-stained eyes. Here it is. This is Jesus the man I've walked with for three years, the man who's delivered me from all these issues that I had, the man who I had pinned all my hopes and dreams on, and now he's dead, and, and so she's just filled with despair in such a way. Uh, and so now she's back at the tomb and with tear-stained eyes, and you can bet they were tear-stained eyes, she looks into the sepulcher, uh, and, and as she looks in, she sees men, two men, but she doesn't recognize that they're angels. Uh, she, and and one, one she thought was the gardener. And of course, it wasn't the gardener. It was Jesus. And so she asked the gardener, Where, where's the body of Jesus? I want to go pick it up. Where is it? Uh, and, and of course, uh, Jesus begins to talk to her. At this point, when she turns his, her back on Christ, not realizing who it is, uh, and he calls out her name, Mary. You imagine that moment, Mary. And all of a sudden, the realization of that name, the realization of the person that you could only say that name in that way, strikes her like a thunderbolt, strikes her. And as she heard the name from Jesus, it's, it's like sheep who know the voice of their shepherd. You know, we know the voice of Jesus. We know when someone is speaking to us from Jesus Christ. You know when you're hearing a message that's being inspired by the Holy Spirit. You know the name of God that's coming to you when you hear a message that's filled with the Holy Spirit. You know it because in your heart, you are responding to that message. And that's the same thing with go, that went on here. And so she recognized it's Jesus. She responds incredibly, joyfully with, with love. Uh, and at that moment, really her own resurrection takes place. Because when she sees that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, she recognizes that he isn't truly the Son of God, that he is truly the Lord. And so faith had died before, but now it is leaping from the tomb. Hope had evaporated. Hope had evaporated, but now it all comes back at the realization of who Jesus is. And it's all gathered around the person of Jesus. This is the message you have to give to a lost world. Let me tell you about it. I want you to understand what the darkness and despair was before they recognized Jesus had resurrected from the dead. That's what's filling the world right now. Because the world doesn't understand that Jesus came out of the tomb, that the tomb is empty. They don't understand that. And if you don't understand that, you don't have a personal understanding of that's what Christ did for you, then your world is filled with despair and gloom and no hope. That's what it is. What you have the responsibility to tell them, no, 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 the tomb is empty. He's resurrected. And hope and faith and love are all gathered around him because of that. And when you understand who he is and what he's done for you and recognize that his, your name was written on his scarred hand, then you know that you, that you will see him again, that you'll be together with your family forever uh, in heaven because of what Christ did. And so this is the message we have to convey to a lost world. Um, and so there are people out there in the world who don't have faith. Uh, they don't have hope. And they don't have love. And you have to understand what it would be like 
for them to live this way. It's, it's an incredible, incredibly dark day. And so here you see it all coming together and all evaporated as Jesus comes once and for all. Uh, and then I want you to say that, that understanding exactly what Christ has done for us in his love, turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 6. And this really underscores, again, what you need to tell a lost world. Verse 6. You see, and this is Paul writing, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the message you have to give to a world that doesn't have hope. Yes, you're, you are a sinner. Yes, you're lost. Yes, you're in despair, but I have a message for you. I have a lifesaver for you. I want you to know that in a second, your life will be changed, that you will have hope eternal, and everything that you th need will be suddenly given to you. Uh, and, and it's done through the love of Jesus Christ. And I, I cited in my outline 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, the love chapter. And yesterday I had the privilege to do a wedding at the, on the beach at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. It's been quite a week for me. I was up in New Jersey for two, week, two days. That's like purgatory. <laughs> and I came back, uh, and on Friday I did Bob Byer's funeral, spoke at his funeral, uh, and then on Saturday I did a wedding. And now today I'm with you, you know? Uh, so it's been quite a week. Uh, but I, I spoke about, about that 1 Corinthians uh, chapter. Uh, you know, chapter 13, uh, the love chapter. And I spoke about how, how significant love is in a marriage. You can't have a successful marriage unless you have the love of Jesus Christ. Unless Jesus is in your home, that marriage is doomed to failure. Sorry to say it. Maybe accidentally it'll go on. But the point that I, I, I mentioned and referenced there, and it applies again here at the, at the tomb, which you understand how, the whole, how despair and gloom had entered their lives. And as I said to this couple and, and to the, you know, the, the assembled people that were on the beach, you know, a marriage, a godly marriage is a triangle. And at the base of the triangle is the husband and the wife on either side. And as the, the husband and wife over the course of a lifetime together seek Jesus, who is at the pinnacle of the triangle, as they move up the sides of the triangle, going towards Jesus and worshiping Jesus and loving Jesus, inevitably they are drawn closer together. You understand the picture of Jesus Christ. That's the nature of love. There is no greater, greater gift, as Paul said, said. It is the greatest gift. Love is the greatest gift. And Jesus has given us that in such a, a deep and profound way. Now, as I've studied this chapter, I've also uh, been convicted that I need to speak about the role of women again. I alluded to it last week, but God has really drilled this into my heart even more. And I want to make sure, ladies, that you understand where God sees you. And God sees you fully equal in every way to men. I know some of you are looking at me like, oh man, this guy's out in the limb. No, I'm not out in the limb. I want you to understand that. You are fully equal in every way to men. I want you to take a look at Romans chapter 16. 
And I'm not going to read it, but I want you to reference this. Because in this passage, Paul will greet by name ten people who he identifies as colleagues in Christian ministry. You got that? He's identifying colleagues in Christian ministry. Now, seven of the ten are women. Phoebe, who is referenced by him as the deacon of the church of Sanchia. How's that? And a leader of many, including myself. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. Junia, an outstanding among the apostles. That's his quote. Prisca, my fellow worker in Christ Jesus. All right? And Mary, Trephena, Trephosa, and Persis, who worked hard in the name of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 16, 16 urges believers to be subject to every fellow laborer. So what does it mean? It means that men and women laboring for the Lord Jesus are subject to each other. We're subject to each other under the, the uh, will of God. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, identifies those who labor among you, those uh, who labor among you, and those who are over you in the Lord. It cannot be stressed enough that Paul is not simply listing these women as believers, but as ministry leaders. Ministry leaders. All right? Paul greets many believers in this passage, but describes as ministry leaders only 10 people. Only 10. And seven of those 10 are women. Uh, and, and the three men are Achilla, Andronicus, and Urbanus. The first two that I just named are listed with their wives, highlighting their shared authority. Paul's naming such a high proportion of women leaders in an open society is unparalleled. Remember that world. Is unparalleled in the entire history of Greek literature and suggests a level of female leadership in the early church exceptional for its culture. And that is all part and parcel of these women traveling with Jesus. You understand? And Jesus honoring them and them coming to the tomb because they were in fact leaders. Because God had called them to be leaders in the early church. Uh, and so this is so important as Paul is affirming men and women with equality in the image of God. Uh, and given and Christ and given dominion over the earth and given the creation mandate and blessing. Uh, and much of the, the theology that he espouses here uh, logically entails their equality. Much of it. You can't have the message that he preached without understanding the equality that he understood. Servant leadership, mutual submission in church and marriage. Notice what I just said mutual submission. You know, there are a lot of old-time uh, people, even old-time preachers, who, who hearken on the issue of submission and quickly make it a point of, of the woman submitting to the man. You've got to submit to the man. Well, let me tell you something. Under Jesus uh, Christ, there's nobody submitting to anybody but, but submitting to Christ Jesus. We submit to Christ Jesus, and then we, as we submit to Christ Jesus, our hearts are so touched is that we can't wait to serve each other. Women serving men and men serving women together under the leadership of Jesus Christ. 
That's what you see, and that's what you see here at the tomb. That's the message here of the tomb, how glorious it is, as we understand the oneness of the body of Christ. It is one body. We are all called together to be in that body, men and women together in full equality. Can I get an amen? amen. Oh, I'm glad. <laughs> because I may be out in the parking lot at some point preaching, and I, ho and I hope you'll remember that this is what I said. But, but this... This is an important, important message to understand. Uh, important message to, to understand. Uh, and, and that God gives the believers the gifts of the Spirit for all liberty in Christ Jesus, uh, inaugurated in the new creation. That's why Paul was so special, because he had the insights, because he had been taught this by Jesus Christ. So I told you that out in the Saudi Arabian desert for 18 months, one-on-one -on -one really with Jesus. That's where he went to seminary. Uh, and, so you, and so you see this. You know, uh, in Galatians chapter 2, uh, verse 11 to chapter 3, uh, Paul insists that unequal treatment in the church, uh, including women, is contrary to the gospel. Contrary to the gospel. He denounces Jewish Christians. He denounces them, including Peter. How do you like that? He denounced Peter for not treating Gentile Christians as equals under God and even refusing to eat with them. And he, and he castigated him. Uh, and, and Paul made it a point, and he made it a point there in that passage because he argues that Christian salvation identity is in Christ alone. That's who we are. We are saved by Christ alone. We're not saved by a, a, by a, a legality or legalism or the fact that we were Jews and called to be chosen people. We're not saved by a, a uh, specific religion. We're saved totally by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so it is contrary, contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ to assign status or privilege in the church based on ethnicity, wealth, or gender. You got that? All right, and that's what you see at the tomb. That's what you see at the tomb, that they knew that they wanted to serve Jesus, they were, that they had become leaders of the early church, this group of women. And Mary Magdalene is, is first and foremost uh, among them. Uh, and, and so there is no Jew or Greek division. There is no slave or free division. There is no male or female division, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's what he said. And so it's, it's an extraordinary passage. And so you, you understand really what it meant to walk with Jesus, what it meant to be imbued with that love, what it meant to see the Son of God walking on this earth, that here he is in the fullness of God, in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, giving this kind of message that the world had never seen before. They'd never heard this before. They never heard of equality like this before, that the world had no equality that the world was full of status, and that was the way religion was, and that was fully the way the Jewish religion was as well, where women couldn't even testify as a witness. And Christ breaks it all, breaks it all, and all of it is broken on that day, on that Sunday, when out of that tomb he rises up, and death is defeated forever, and hope is, is brought forward, and despair and gloom is ended. 
And for us, that's the way we are today. We don't have despair today. Yes, we have tough days, but then when we understand what he's done for us, that we're called to be with him in heaven, our hearts are lifted up. Look, you are going to be with Jesus when you pass. I told you, you have the ticket, you have it, you have it in your hand. No one can take it from you. You will be with him. And when you are there with him, you'll be with your family members who have also accepted Christ. And you'll be with your brothers and sisters here who have also done that. Every single one of you have been guaranteed by the cross to be there with Jesus Christ. How? How can you despair? How can you have gloom? I don't care how tough some of the days are. That's the essence of life. That's what he's given us. Focus on the cross. Keep your eye on the cross. Never deviate from the cross. And God will guide every one of your steps. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you again for that empty tomb. I thank you for the steadfastness of the women, Lord, who were with Jesus the whole time of his ministry and walked with him and supported him and loved him. And even on that terrible day when they went to the tomb and the body is missing, how they still wanted to anoint the body with their substance. And yet, Lord, they came face to face with you and how hope and despair immediately evaporated because how can we have no hope? How can we be in despair when we stand next to the living God, when we stand next to the Son of God, when we stand next to our Lord and Savior. God, thank you so much for this message. Let it resonate in our heart this week as we recognize what you have done for us and we see these women as an image to us of that great hope, Lord. Bless us and be with us, protect us, and bring us back next week to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.